From Animal Media, this is Tech on Politics, the podcast that lives at the intersection of technology and politics. I'm your host, Tom Saris. They say politics is for politicians and technology is for nerds living in Silicon Valley. One says the other is archaic and painfully slow. The other shuns the speed and disruptive chaos. At the end of the day, they both see each other as polar opposites. But are they? In Tech on Politics, we'll turn the microphone on some of the ways political organizations and tech entrepreneurs are actually strange bedfellows. And we'll visit with some of the brightest people working on some of the most innovative things our world has ever seen. If you thought watching the 2016 electoral politics play out was harrowing, imagine what it felt like from inside one of the campaigns. I had the opportunity to touch nearly 70,000 political campaigns through my first startup, Rally.org, from hyperlocal school board campaigns to several presidentials. No matter how big or small, working on a political campaign is an adrenaline-fueled 24-7 lifestyle that can explode your mind with endorphins on election day, or send you into a deep, dark hole if you lose. I encourage everyone listening to the show to spend some time working on a campaign in a leadership position. You won't regret it. Someone once told me, it's the show, baby. Hard as hell to get there, hard as hell to win. But if you do, you're among a really elite circle. My guest today, Andrew Bleeker, is the founder and president of Bully Pulpit Interactive. You can find them at bpimedia.com. He ran digital marketing for Obama 2008, 2012, and then went on to senior strategist in digital marketing for Hillary Clinton in 2016. He is truly among an elite circle. Very few folks get the opportunity to sit in a leadership role on a presidential campaign. Even fewer get to be a part of a team that actually wins. Andrew, you have battled some of the most ridiculous shit in the world. (laughs) and help lead some of the largest political media campaigns in history. Welcome to the show, Andrew. It's an honor to have you on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. So a friend and colleague, Matt Lira, you might know him, once told me he had a presidential election theory, and that is that we elect presidents like we choose popes. Uh, Fat pope, skinny pope, fat pope, skinny pope. You think maybe it was just time for a fat pope? (laughs) Um, I've always wanted to work the papal election, to be totally honest with you. I mean, that to me, that's the it's the election of a lifetime. Fixed electorate, you know, like 50-year campaign to be God's emissary to, to earth, right? It's a great campaign. Look, obviously, we would have I would have loved this campaign to go a different direction. I think, though, there's so many factors going into these things, uh, and we have to be careful to, to do two things. One is not to overgeneralize, particularly because a lot of the data is still being run. The, the you know, popular vote totals are still clicking up. Obviously, for what that's worth, and apparently then th- not much. Yeah, well, I, I think the other uh, the other sort of fallacy about campaigns is that when you win, your you know everything you did was genius. Uh, when you lose, you know everything must have been a shambles. And, and in fact, that's rarely ever the case. Well, it's like somebody once told me: when you're the CEO of the company, when you're right, nobody knows, and when you're wrong, everybody knows. Sure. Uh, yeah, it's a very, it's a very similar thing, and I, I think there was there was so much good both on the presidential level and on as we look down ticket, because there's a lot of innovation happening down ticket as well in the Senate, the House, and even occasionally as you get into municipal races. You know, sometimes the innovation happens on losing campaigns and it takes a winning campaign sometimes for people to look and say, oh, you know, obviously that's the secret, uh, even though it was used many times before. So I have to know, like, what was going through your mind 
in the wee hours of November 9th. You were you were probably sitting in the room. There's probably a lot of other really awesome, interesting people there. What was what was the room like? What was well, your head a, like? Look, I, I think first of all, there's a there's a moment where there, there's nothing you can do on a campaign. <laughs> you know, we ran ads and rapid response operations and everything else till till very late on on Tuesday night. Again, not just on the presidential, but but up and down the ticket because BPI, our firm, represented many sort of leading races from some of the newest senators in places like New Hampshire and Illinois, as well as uh, like Michael Bennett's campaign in Colorado. So a lot of different races. But there's a point where there's nothing you can do. It's out of your hands. The ads are down. You're not tweeting. You're not emailing. And you just have to wait to see what, what the voters decide. And obviously, I think this campaign was particularly hard for a lot of people, certainly myself, uh, because we the whole country, I think, thought things were going to go in a different direction, including I would wager the Trump campaign. <laughs> Yeah, that's wild. What would you say are probably some of the tools in your tool belt that you go to on a regular basis as a person that leads the digital marketing efforts for some of the biggest political media campaigns in history? What tools do you use? What do you think about on a daily basis as you're sort of like, oh, well, I'm going to have this several hundred million dollar digital ad buy that I'm going to manage. What are you using? What sites? I mean, it'd be sure. great. Well, I think we think about it slightly differently. Hmm. I think we, we start with, and the advantage in politics is that we, we really start with, first of all, who's the audience? And so before we'd get to something like sites, which is the hmm. equivalent of like what TV show should you buy an ad on, right? I think we want to start with who's our audience and really drill down into not just demographics, right? There's been a lot of talk in the last couple of weeks about um, of it probably feels like years, for you. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, of really broad demographics. But you know, if you think back to the Bush era, you talk about soccer moms and NASCAR dads, and you know, we've been talking a lot about sort of Rust Belt whites or certain other demographics. And the reality is, you know, in campaigns, we really have the ability, and I think in marketing generally today, to start to think more at the individual level and to get a lot more targeted than that because those are very broad strokes. But to, you know, through modeling and through data, to really look at Literally, these are the million people that we think are swing voters in this election or the 100,000 in a state or that sort of level. And then we can back out. Targeting today, and I think this is going to be – it's certainly true online and it's about to be true on television, is really more about people than places, right? So we want to reach those 100,000 people and I don't care as much about whether I reach them when they're getting the sports score, when they're reading about a political story or whether they're watching Hulu or Pandora. I want to reach those people, and I, I, the efficiency of not wasting money on people that have already decided is more important to me than what site we reach them on. So more tactically, when you're going out to, say, an ad network, which ones do you go to? Well, I think today the question is, who has really good quality inventory, mm. right? And it's less of a network question, I would say, today than I think there are still a handful of sites, publications, that really produce a lot of terrific content today. I think you have to start with the social networks because that's where a lot of people are online today increasingly. Uh, I mean, our shift from, say, traditional network buying as an industry, uh, political industry, not just a single campaign, has shifted dramatically from 2012 to today because with the growth of programmatic, there's a little bit less need to use maybe more traditional networks. There's still plenty of them that specialize in certain niches or certain verticals. And this but, would be like online display ads. Sure, or video. Video, okay. Sure. Does, uh, um, but there's, I think, a Versus lot more. Versus social ads. Sure. But there's a lot more dependence on 
the, the handful of sites that, that really produce their own content, control their own inventory, can really do some interesting creative installations. Um, and so whether that's, you know, in the news world, obviously they're, it depends on who you want to reach, but they're, you know, the big ones are still people that produce their own content. So the original portals like AOL are still very, and Yahoo are very important. In the audio world, it's really Pandora and Spotify. Obviously the social networks are massive. How was uh, Spotify and Pandora as performers? Pandora has been in the political uh, advertising business for longer than Spotify. Obviously, it's a it's a newer player, uh, but both are really interesting. One because people are really paying attention, so you can get that audio ad, you know, much like a radio ad, uh, but you know people are listening. Whereas traditional radio, you sort of the assumption is most people sort of listen during drive time, but you don't really know who's listening, and and we do know that. And we can do more interesting work online to sequence our ads, to try to deliver more tailored messaging to certain audiences, or maybe even tie it in a little bit to what music they're listening to. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess with those services, because you have many of them are connected to your social network, right? Your, your or you have Facebook an account audience, of some you have kind. An account, yeah. How much would you say, if you, if, you, if you can disclose, like how did you distribute your ad buy when you were thinking about Facebook versus? SEM, SEO, like how did you think about your portfolio of options? And then how did you, how did that change over the campaign cycle? Yeah, it's a great question. Within campaigns, there are different objectives to programs that campaigns run. In my mind, campaigns have three primary objectives. We call the three M's, money, message, and mobilization. And we, we I would think about, for any campaign, I would think about each of those a little bit differently. So if you are trying to raise money, right, as an example, whether in the Democratic Party, we've done that traditionally much more via building these grassroots communities, building email lists, what, going back to Obama and Howard Dean and beyond. Email's uh, still king, right? It is, but not in the Republican Party. Oh, uh, the Trump hmm. campaign, okay. if you look at most of their fundraising, it's not hmm. – yes, email is still very, very powerful. But the other channels are gaining ground on it, social, direct, web, et cetera. But the Republican Party as a whole, including the Trump campaign, just has a, has a very different – approach to digital fundraising really than the Democratic Party as a whole. They really are more transactional. You know, they did a lot more sort of what we call direct donate activity versus building these communities and these lists for the longer term. They were a little more incentive-based, you know, join the Trump gold they member. They used a lot more e-commerce, I noticed, they, which was really smart. I think e-commerce and political campaigns has been under-leveraged for a long time. It definitely has, but I, I would say that I don't think that's unique to Trump. Uh, the Hillary campaign store generated far more revenue than the Obama campaign stores ever did. Really? Uh, wow. And you probably wouldn't think of Hillary merchandise being as iconic as maybe some of the Obama merchandise. What uh, percentage of the campaign revenue was that? Uh, I, I'd have to get you the numbers, but it, it's still a not a, not a massive percentage of the of the total revenue, but substantially, I mean, substantially, real, real, real money. So back to the three M's. So in a fundraising campaign, you're skewed more towards people that already have shown some interest in your candidate. You know, people searching for you is terrific, but even if you're Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or Barack Obama or Bernie Sanders, you have far fewer people searching for you than you would like at any given day, right? So obviously search is a very powerful tool there and interest. Uh, likewise, social is particularly powerful because you can – there are affinity groups. People have raised their hand that says I'm, a, I'm interested in progressive causes or conservative causes or what have you. So I'd say search and social are by far the most – sort of the first place you start, the most efficient. And then for scale, you really have to go out. But in, in something like that, you are more likely to use 
direct response mediums like display and social and other kinds of sort of more, it's about getting people to a website to, to be transactional versus as you get into these other two, you get very heavily into video and higher impact platforms. And what kind of tools do you guys use for tracking? So we use a couple things, right? Tracking, um, you know, in marketing is a, is a good word and politics is uh, is a little more complicated of a world. Well, we don't want to be tracked when it comes to politicians. Right. But we don't mind when Coca-Cola does it. Well, but the truth is we don't, there's no ability in the marketing world to track people in the way that I think there maybe is a perception there is. I think, all, you know, everything is blind from the individual level. So I can't see that Tom is doing something or Andrew's doing something. But we can see how our ads perform on the whole, right, anonymously. So we can see that this ad of a 30-second video, people are only watching 10 seconds, but this one they watch 25. So that's the first piece is are we actually delivering our messages and are, are we delivering to the right people? Because that's harder than it sounds these days. With, well, and there's, as you say, there's so much content. How do you break through? So much content. And then that's the second question is, is it working? And that that is much more interesting than I think it was in, in you know, say, 2012 or previous races. I really strongly believe there's a difference between engagement and persuasion. And the truth is that most of the web technology today is built for e-commerce. And we as an industry, political communications, marketing, use what is easiest to measure typically. So we look at things like likes and shares and, and see you know, okay, well, that must have been a really effective piece of content. So an example I love to give in the Obama campaigns was, you know, you put something with Obama and his dog, and it's just going to do great from an engagement perspective. Everyone's going to share it. Also, also true with kids, at least at least some kids, cute children, right? I mean, every time I post a photo of my daughter, I get like a thousand likes, and then I post something really interesting and thoughtful, and it gets like two. Right. So this is <laughs> so this is the balance. Nobody was, you know, voting for President Obama or made that decision, no no swing voters were making that decision because of the photo of his dog. But on the flip side, we had a piece of content that everyone's probably seen in some way, shape, or form that we call the jobs chart, which was a graph of jobs lost by month under President Bush and ultimately grown by month, uh, private sector jobs under, under President Obama. And that piece of content wasn't shared nearly at the degree, at least at first, of, say, a dog photo would have been. But through testing, we actually found it to be far more persuasive. And so it's it's finding that balance of... You know, what's engaging? How do you build an audience, particularly organically? And then particularly with your paid dollars, how do you really push content that is going to break through persuasively? And there's some new technology out there that really helps with this. Uh, we have a version of it at, at BPI that we call Vantage. Um, but a lot, I think a lot of companies are trying to crack this code, which does two things. One is essentially it really ties online surveys to the delivery of individual pieces of content. So it gets that causality. Because you can see polls go up or polls go down, and there, there are 20 reasons that could have happened, right? You could have had a bad press story. Campaign could have had an event. But understanding at an individual level who was exposed and who was not in a sort of controlled experimental environment to individual pieces of content or series of content is really important. So you must have like a pretty big content team. Like how oh, do all, you all these, camp these things? I think that's the biggest challenge for every campaign today is, is content. Wow. Um, it not only the number of channels that campaigns are expected to communicate on because we have to meet voters where they are, but also the sort of the the high quality of content that has to come out. The Hillary campaign, I, I was well, and then you're also battling the fake news. Well, totally. But I, I think the Hillary campaign, uh, I think, had the most uh, talented content team I've, I've ever worked with, and I think you can have that run a terrific campaign and still lose. But I think that what people need to remember is that. The opponent of a content program, the opposition is not just the other candidate. 
In fact, rarely is it the other candidate. It is, I, I, in my mind, in campaigns, you are competing for the mind share, the attention of your target audience, which means that you're competing not just with you know candidates with similar budget levels to you, but you're competing with BuzzFeed and Vox and ESPN uh, and people that are maybe talking about similar issues but can do these gorgeous graphics, videos, um, you know, get influencers and others to talk about it. Uh, and if you if your content isn't of that same standard, I think the Hillary campaigns was, no one's going to follow your stuff. What do you think happened? Why? How did we not break through to these Rust Belters? How, how did how did the Hillary campaign not break through? What happened? Well, look. First of all, it's my just my personal opinion on this. I think the data is still being run in a lot of ways, um, but I'm I'm not sure that's the, the entirety of the question. Because if you look at if you looked at a lot of the exit poll data, I think it did in a lot of ways. Voters on election day, over fifty percent thought Hillary would be better for them on the economy, which is the central topic in most in most campaigns. Uh, another central issue of the Hillary campaign is that over fifty percent of voters thought Trump was unfit to be president. So, and I also think, by the way, if the election had been held a week earlier, particularly pre Comey, uh, it would have been a very different outcome. Ultimately, there was, among other things, a turnout challenge. But ultimately, we live in a very divided country. Twenty-five percent of the country voted for one candidate. 25 voted for another, and 50% didn't vote. Hillary did win the popular vote uh, and is quite popular among the other 50%. <laughs> but there are a lot of factors that led to ultimately to the deficit in some key states. If you really go back and you say, okay, well, let's think about how many people participate in a primary. And he's like, okay, 30 million, right? So 10, 15% of the eligible population participate. Half of that actually picks one of the candidates that goes on to the nomination process. You have effectively 5% of the population-ish determining who the president of the United States is going to be. That's so strange. And then you have these turnout problems. I was doing research on uh, Pennsylvania. My theory was it's going to come down to Pennsylvania. And I saw that, like, what was it, like 100,000 or several hundred thousand registered Democrats, which Republican, and nobody was talking about this. And I was like, man, that's a big number. And this was pre-Trump. This was like t late 2015, early 2016. And I said, that's going to be a nail biter right there. If that flips, that's going Trump. Did, did the Hillary campaign miss this? What happened in the electoral part of Michigan, Wisconsin? Michigan and Wisconsin shocked me. I didn't see that coming. Pennsylvania, I thought, okay, dangerous territory. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I don't think anyone missed any anything there. If, if anything, I think the, the the real question. I think one, the press was so one sided over the last week on two factors: one that there was some issue with emails, and two that Hillary was going to win. That the you know that we really just in a lot of ways didn't get the turnout that we we were hoping to get uh, in some of the other areas of you know like urban areas of Pennsylvania, for instance. Um, you know, the, the old saying about Pennsylvania, right, is that you've got, you know, this, these liberal cities in, you know, Pittsburgh and, and Philly, then you've got Alabama in between. Uh, and it, it's really true. We have, we do really have a divided country. I think the other, you know, more than certainly, as Hillary said, more, I think, than, than some of us thought uh, or hoped. I think the other thing that's, that's interesting is depending on the state, right, states are moving in two directions. Some states are moving, uh, to talk about to your point about turnout and how many people aren't voting or participating today, uh, states are moving in two different directions. Some states are making some really 
impressive innovations to make voting easier, particularly voter registration easier. We have a couple states this year that have fully end-to-end online voter registration. I saw this. Uh, which is terrific. Uh, is Of course, when you think about who, who needs to register to vote, it's particularly younger folks. It's folks that are moving more frequently, right? And how many 18-year-olds do you know that have a stamp? The sharing economy <laughs> world, right? I mean, many of us, our home is where we make it. Yeah. So that the, the voter registration issue is a real challenge, right? And that's one where some states have made huge strides. They've also done it in terms of making early voting more accessible. So particularly, you know, folks that work maybe hourly wage jobs can, can vote after work or can vote on a weekend beforehand or something like that. We still have these issues with lines. And then we see other states going in the absolute other direction particularly states with Republican-controlled legislatures and secretaries of state that are reducing early voting times, they're adding requirements around ID, that are making it harder to register and vote on the same day, depending on the state. Look, I, there, there are things we can do to really dramatically improve participation, uh, both on elections and sort of generally more civically. And other countries do. Uh, and other states are, are setting great examples. But uh, it's not something we have made a, enough progress on nationally. Oh, wait. 12, 16, you've been a part of all three of these. Um, my guess is you're probably going to take a break on the next one. <laughs> At least I would. Oh, I can't think that far yet. <laughs> but but there are lots of great people, at least in the Democratic Party. I'd be very confident with any of the staff that came for out sure. the campaign. For sure. I think the um, question I have for you is you've, you've seen the birth of social media and, and politics. I mean, if you think 08, there was like maybe 100, 200 million people on Facebook to today where it's like 44% of adults are getting their news on Facebook. How would you peg 08, 12, 16, and then where do you think that's going in the future? What should we be looking to? So there are two, I think there are two ways to ask the question. One is sort of externally, like was this a social media election, et cetera? And then is what does it mean for campaigns? You know, I think in many ways 08 is known as the first social media election because the the, you know, President Obama was on Facebook, was on Twitter. But if you think back to what these social networks were back then, it was really limited. To get to Barack Obama's Facebook, you had to go to the page. There wasn't a news feed back then. So the re- reality is, well, it, it really helped with his sort of image as being a more modern candidate. In reality, it didn't touch the number of people that social media has over, and digital generally the last couple of years. The piece that really changed the game in 2008, I think, was fundraising, right? You know, raising almost half a billion dollars online. Uh, via email. By 2012, certainly social media was a, a much bigger factor. And the digital role really expanded from not just the fundraising element to very, in a very serious way, the persuasion elements and the mobilization elements of campaigns. And by 2016, it was central. When I started in digital politics in 2004, we were the internet team and we sat next to IT and people would come over and ask us to fix their printers. And we would try and fail. But that, that was sort of where we sat on the totem pole. By 2008, we were new media. And because of fundraising, we started to gain some, some real respect. I used to but, hate the term new media. I, I still do, but still very extremely siloed from the, the other operations of the campaign, whether that's the field, the communications operation, paid media. By 2012, we at least all knew that we had to work together. So there was always a press person, a digital person in every meeting, but they were yet still quite siloed. By this campaign, up and down the ticket, I think on both sides of the aisle, what we really are seeing as an integration is that the walls are coming down between these silos. It's not different people that are online versus watch TV versus you're knocking on their door. They're not treating it differently when they get a communication from one channel or the other. So digital and data really became the center of these campaigns. There wasn't a major press moment that wasn't driven by some sort of digital 
innovation capacity video tweet right there wasn't a major operation in the field where digital wasn't a driving force whether that was like a a sort of airline like customer service operation on election day to help people get their information if they had questions on Twitter, right, which is a totally new thing in politics today that was pioneered by a woman on our campaign uh, named Jess Morales, who's terrific. Digital really became the center. But yet, they were different teams. They were different departments. And one of the things that I'm really excited about is at some point as the sort of our generation, if you will, folks that came up running digital and data-driven programs and, and folks on the particularly in digital and data teams and technology teams, start to become field directors, finance directors, communications directors, and campaign managers. Uh, because I, I think- Which many campaign managers are super old school. A lot of good ones out there. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Look, I, I, I think we had, we had some great ones. I think Robin Mook and the Hillary campaign sure. is amazing and, and it is of our generation. But I, I think that's going to be a tipping be point that's going to be sooner than candidates being of that ilk. All right, so you have an hour with President-elect Donald Trump. Ugh. What, what would you want to say to him? What would, what would you be talking to him about? Look, I think he's got a massive opportunity and responsibility. It's one of the, you know, the highest offices in the world, and he's got to take on the biggest problems in the world. And I want him working on climate change, and I want him working on jobs and, and peace. I think we need him a little less worried about where he's eating today or what his poll numbers. You know, President Obama was willing to lose a second term to get health care passed. I, I just not sure if that's the situation we, we sort of find ourselves in today. He's responding to in real time to press rumors on staff shakeups in the transition. You know, some that's somebody's job, but the President of the United States gotta has gotta fix the big problems. Is there anything that you'd like to tell our listeners today? I would just say that the next four years, civic engagement has really never been more important and that's broader than campaigns. That is the nonprofit, the foundation, the local city government, making better experiences in a state secretary of state's office to make voter registration easier. It's really, truly, at least from my perspective, with unified Republican government, as unified as they are, with you know President-elect Trump, I, I really encourage folks to get involved. These campaigns are made better by people from all industries that are willing to take a break from their careers to, it could be in marketing, they could be in sales, to technology, to whatever it might be, to join up, get involved, because your country needs you. Andrew Bleeker, president and founder of Bully Pulpit Interactive, head of digital for our digital marketing for Obama, uh, 2008, 2012, Hillary Clinton, 2016, perhaps somebody else in 2020. Still a young guy. With a lot less hair than we started. <laughs> It's been a real pleasure having you on the show today, Andrew. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, you bet. Tech on Politics is produced by Animal Media, with Bettina Warburg as executive producer and content production from Gina Delbach. You can find this episode and our newest podcast, The Herd, at animalmedia.com. And follow this show on Twitter at Tech on Politics. I'm your host, Tom Saris.